talk like this, how's that? That is absolutely perfect. Good. Okay. Right, we are rolling. Everything is going. I don't think anything should go wrong. Everything should be absolutely fine. Except I've lost my phone. <laughs> there we go. All right. In the depth of the forest, an old oak the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches, the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Hello, I'm David Oakes and welcome to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. Whether a birder, sheep herder or a collective noun of crows, I'm going to get to talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. This week I'm in York. It's the 2nd of July and Europe is still reeling from one of its hottest days on record. But I'm here to talk to Professor Sir John Lawton. John is a fellow of the Royal Society and is currently the president of the Yorkshire Wildlife Trust. There seems to be a lack of environmental organisations that he hasn't been an integral part of. Over the years, he has given his time, passion and intellect to the Institution of Environmental Sciences, the Worldwide Fund for Nature, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, and most importantly was, as a child, as was I, a member of the Young Ornithologists Club. So, Sir John, hello and welcome to Choose the Crowd. Hi, hi. Nice to be here. It's lovely to be here. We're sitting in your garden and there are birds tweeting and I have a cup of tea in my hands. So I yes. can't complain as much as... <laughs> Indeed, indeed. I guess my first question is, where's, where was home originally? Where were you born? I was uh, born and brought up in a, in a town called Leyland in Lancashire. Mm-hmm. As you can probably tell from my accent, I don't come from Yorkshire, I come sure. from Lancashire. It's the Burry R's that uh, give it away. Are you still competitive? Are, uh, are the uh, no, I've lived in York since 1971, <laughs> so uh, I'm not entitled to play cricket for Yorkshire, but uh, <laughs> I'm an adopted Yorkshireman and proud. I love Yorkshire, but uh, I was born and brought up in a town called Leyland. Uh, Leyland Paint, uh, Leyland Motors, but a small industrial town on the edge of the, uh, uh, the, 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 the Lancashire Moss uh, with a wonderful local park and uh, I spent most of my uh, childhood wandering around the fields at the back of Leyland. I was, you know, in the days when children could do that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of people I've spoken to over the course of the podcast who have just sort of grew up with taking the natural world for granted and not realising that it was there. Uh, yeah, no, I didn't take it for granted. I mean, I, I remember vividly going on holiday with my mother and father to a, a place called Fairhaven on the Lancashire coast. Uh-huh. Um, it was the first family holiday because you know it wasn't long after the after the end of the Second World War. I was born in 1943, and I think I, I was seven, so I, uh, I, I was seven years old when we went to to, to Arnside, mm-hmm. uh, to Fairhaven. I'm sorry, uh, and uh, I remember being absolutely fascinated by uh, some waders on the beach. Okay. I'd never seen a wader. Uh, now looking back, uh, and in those days, the beach at Fairhaven, you know, we were the only family on the beach at Fairhaven. Sure. Um, and I, looking back, I'm pretty sure they were ring plovers and they were breeding on the on the shingle. I found a, a video of, of you online talking about cranes that were, I think they were up in Humberside. Oh. Uh, one of the natural areas that you've helped establish. Yes, I can come. I'll tell you about the cranes. Is it? Is, it, is there maybe because of those plovers back then that these wading birds have always been something that have been close to you? Um, no, I mean all birds. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I, I pestered my parents to know what they were, and my father, who was a very, very good amateur, he was a lawyer, but he was a good amateur botanist, uh-huh. didn't know what they were. But they promised me that if I behaved myself, I could have a, a bird book at the end of the holiday. <laughs> so I got the Observers Book of British 
British birds at the age of seven. I devoured it. It has more or less fell to pieces uh-huh. by the time I was nine. And we got, I got another one. Sure. Um, and I've watched birds ever since. I mean, I've ever since being seven. So I've done it for darn neat. I'm 76 next month. So I've been doing it for darn nearly 70 years. Why birds? Um, I have no idea. <laughs> um, except they've always absolutely intrigued me. Uh-huh. and fascinated me and it's been you know a huge part of my my life one of my earliest memories and this is not a false memory i was probably about 3 so it's real was being lifted up by my mother's mother my uh-huh. nan as she was called, in her little garden in Leyland, next door to where we lived as a family, and being shown a hedge sparrow's nest by my mum parting the hedge, and there's this hedge sparrow's nest in the uh-huh. privet hedge with these brilliant blue eggs. <laughs> and I remember that, and that was when I was three. And uh, and then, you know, I, I started on birds, but, uh, you know, anything to do with natural history now, plants, uh-huh. insects, dragonflies, you know, I, I love it. There's something... I- I mean, I remember a trip, it must have been about six or seven, I guess, we went to Sandy to the RSPB headquarters and I think I got bought a cuddly puffin as a way to keep me quiet. <laughs> but I remember, like, pushing to get my first set of binoculars and I remember sort of, I don't know, I, there's a sort of that visceral nature of seeing a nest for the first time, mm. the little bits mm. of the, the downy feathers mm. and they're seeing the different kinds of twigs that they capture. There's, it's that construction, that intellect that they... Yeah undoubtedly share with us oh, absolutely uh, and actually I mean as a, as a so from about the age of 8 or 9 I was, I was just allowed to wander off sure. uh, and I spent I must have been an incredibly easy child to bring <laughs> up because I you know I used to disappear go bird watching and, and looking for birds nests particularly in the breeding season and I will confess collected I collected eggs oh. um, I, I never took whole clutches I was very careful I only ever took one or two. It's fascinating how these things have changed over the years. I mean, you couldn't dream of doing it now. My father collected butterflies. And I collected butterflies as well. Uh, and and I had you know I, I collected you know, all kinds of things if I bit <laughs> dead bits and skulls. <laughs> my par- looking back, my parents were incredibly uh, generous in allowing me to do things that an awful lot of kids would never have sure. been allowed to do. <laughs> and so I mean, there was an old chest of drawers in the spare bedroom in which I kept my egg collection, which consisted of a series of small matchboxes with mm-hmm. cotton wool and the eggs all beautifully labelled. And then in the drawer next to it, I had skulls and sheep, you know. Teeth mm. and owl pellets and all, oh, all I, that kind of I stuff. I have my collection of owl pellets. <laughs> uh, owl pellet collectors, the world unite. Um, <laughs> do you still have any of that collection now at all? Uh, no, 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 no. I mean, you, the, the, the egg collection, um, the once in the wildlife and countryside act came into play and egg collecting became illegal mm. and you weren't allowed to sell them. So, I mean, and you know, it's one of these bonkers things. You you you, you take these objects, you from, which are going to turn into a living bird and you blow mm. the stuff out of it and you keep this empty shell and then you throw it away because there's nothing you can do with it. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I remember thinking, what a stupid thing to have done. I actually remember thinking that. What a really stupid thing to have done. Did it colour your school time at all? Like, how did it affect your time growing up? Oh, very much so. I mean, I was a, as for a child, I was a, I was a good naturalist, so I loved biology lessons and, and I was able to, you know, my professional career as a, as a biologist... Mm-hmm. 
So I think it, it made some parts of the curriculum very easy for me. I was sure. never any good at languages. I I'm, I'm absolutely, I can't read music. Uh, I hardly ever read novels. I struggled with that part of the curriculum uh-huh. uh, completely. Interestingly enough, though, now I love, I love theatre and I love cinema and I love, you know, I love music. So um, you went to university in Durham, I believe. Yes, I, 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 there's a story to that too involving birds. I, I went to a, the local grammar school in Leyland uh, and uh, like, you know, without boasting, with their clever boys, I was supposed to do maths, physics and chemistry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, I, and I didn't want to do maths, physics and chemistry. I wanted to do biology. And, all, and in those days, uh, all, the biology basically the girls did. Sure. And the clever boys did maths, physics and chemistry. Uh-huh. So I, I, I made the first conscious lie to the headmaster, I mean, deliberate porky, big porky, and said I wanted to be a vet. Uh-huh. And therefore, they had to let me do biology, which meant reorganising the entire school timetable so Lawton could do biology. <laughs> Uh, and then, uh, so, but that was fine, and, and I did. It wasn't I, just to hang out with girls, was it? No, 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 <laughs> you, you no, swear. no, no. I de- definitely wasn't. I wanted to do biology. Uh, so the idea was that I, I did chemistry, physics, and, and, and biology, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, I was uh, meant to stay on at school to do Oxford and Cambridge entrance, uh-huh. uh, and that would be a third year. But the, the, this in this in the upper in the upper six, the headmaster sent me to Durham to, for a practice interview. Okay. Uh, and I, I thought Durham was absolutely wonderful. And I remember walking along the big famous loop of the river which goes round below the cathedral mm-hmm. uh, and hearing this quick, 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 quick call, thinking, what on earth is that? Uh, and it turned out to be a nuthatch. Mm-hmm. And there, in those days, nuthatches didn't occur in Lancashire and I'd never seen a nuthatch. Uh-huh. So I decided I was going to go to Durham <laughs> on the basis of nuthatches. Has your entire life been... Called on by birds. Yeah, more or less. <laughs> so I remember going back to tell the headmaster, and he went, he went a bit ballistic because he said, he, first of all, he remembered I was going to be a vet, uh-huh. and then he, uh, uh, and, and so anyway, I uh, I did go to Durham, and I absolutely loved it, and I did biology in the first year. I did uh, zoology, botany, and geology, and then I specialised in zoology for the next two years, and then I stayed in Durham. Uh, to do my PhD. Was it all academic, or was how much was hands-on? Um... Oh, a lot of it was wonderfully hands-on. Okay. Um, I was actually taught by Dave Bellamy. Oh, wow. And, and Bellamy... But <laughs> Bellamy, yes, but Bellamy was an inspirational teacher. He was, he'd just come to Durham as a, young, a very, very young lecturer, and he taught us botany, mm-hmm. and he was absolutely inspirational. And I remember him coming in on one occasion and saying, right, we're not going to do botany today, we're going to dissect a dolphin. <laughs> <laughs> and this dolphin had been washed up on the beach at Hartlepool. And so we, it was duly delivered by the, 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 one of the departmental technicians onto a big bench and we dissected a dolphin there was no dissected a dolphin with David Bellamy with David Bellamy it was wonderful (laughs) there was no manual of course we had to slit this thing open she turned out to be female she was pregnant Um, the skeleton uh, she was then when we dissected it and Mm -hmm. explored all the anatomy uh, and but Bellamy does, you know, you'd never be allowed to do that now. We just for, for two de- two packed whole afternoons, we just dissected an elephant. Yes. And there were only twelve of us in the undergraduate <laughs> year, of course. You have to remember. It's it's the amazing thing. It, like we, the thing you always have to remember with science is we learnt by doing. Absolutely. And now we seem to be learning by thinking, trying to hypothesise rather by getting our hands 
wet, dirty? Um, well, they're not incompatible. I mean, Darwin was a brilliant naturalist mm -hmm. and collected particularly beetles, but he collected all kinds of living creatures. And you know, on the beetle, he sent huge, incredibly valuable specimens back to the UK. But he was he was he was hand, he was very very hands on as a natural historian, but one of the great original thinkers of biology. Mm -hmm. So he was theorising as well. So they're not they're not either or. No, well, the case in point with him is the is the moth with the massive proboscis, which he predicted. Yeah. Well, it was a flower. It was an orchid, mm -hmm. all right, uh, on Madagascar, and he predicted there would be a moth that pollinated it, and the moth would have a tongue that was, I forget, I mean, it was 10 centimetres mm -hmm. long or something, about 10 centimetres, because he'd had to do to fit into the, uh, the the nectar tube of this particular orchid. And, he, and then, subsequently, some people discovered there was indeed a moth, and it did indeed pollinate that, that plant. A bit of a non-sequitur here. If, is there a natural history hero that you would like to meet? Would it be Darwin, or is there somebody else who you think that, is that's an interesting more question. interesting? That's you? an interesting question. I mean, I've, I mean, I've worked with and know David Attenborough, uh -huh. who's one of my heroes, one of everybody's heroes. But uh, I have, uh, I, I, you know, I, I did a, a film series with David quite a long time ago now. I've met Peter Scott, Max Nicholson, a lot of the the greats from the fifties and sixties. I've met at various mm. times. I don't think so. There's no. I'm not going to pretend there is because I, I don't. I mean, there, there's some wonderful people I've met, and there are mm -hmm. a lot of people I, I greatly admire and have influenced my c career and view of the world. But I don't think I have a unique hero. Okay. So your PhD at Durham was in in zoology, uh, in in on dragonflies. Okay. I worked. I did my and I did that because the. Um, John Coulson, who who's still alive actually, John was uh, Doctor Doctor Coulson in those days, Professor Coulson now, but he's in his nineties, still alive, and just published his uh, a paper last year on kittiwakes at the age of ninety. Okay. Uh, anyway, John, I wanted, uh, I mean, the obvious thing to do was for me to do a PhD with John on birds, uh -huh. uh, and I was that's what I was going to do. Uh, I didn't know quite what, and John. To his eternal credit, said, "You don't want to do that. You already know more about birds than most people have done a PhD in ornithology. <laughs> Be an entomologist. There are more jobs in entomology. Okay, always the practical. All right, there are more jobs in entomology, and it will broaden your understanding of the natural world and so on. And anyway, so there's, you know, insects are more experimentally tractable than birds." Uh -huh. uh, and and so, what did I do? The nearest I could find to a Insect that was a bird, bird was a dragonfly. Dragon <laughs> dragon so I did my PhD on dragonflies. They're amazing. I mean, I, I I was in Malaysia last summer about this time, and they had these huge sort of red dragonflies, mm. which must mm. have been I don't know about six inches long. Yeah, they're really really big. Ones. They look yeah. like that's about as big as a dragonfly can get. They're huge. Yeah, yeah. It made me think it's sort of something out of the Jurassic period. Or... Yeah. Well, the, the the ones from the Carboniferous and Jurassic were were, were were sometimes up to half a meter long. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's only possible because the oxygen levels in the atmosphere were higher then than they are now. Sure. Okay. So what were you specialising in your PhD I, about? I worked on... This is terribly esoteric. I worked on the, uh, uh, the ecological energetics of the uh, of dragonfly larvae uh, because in those, day, those days... So that's how populations and individual wild animals acquire and use energy. 
Okay. Which is theoretical underpinning for quite a lot of eco ecology. Uh, it has to do, for example, with the way that food webs are structured, because mm -hmm. at each step in the food chain, you lose, you know, you, you lose energy, and so it determines things like length of food chains and so on, um, or it can do. Uh, so that, uh, and at that, in those days, this was in 1965. I started my PhD. Uh, and uh, there were, there, nobody done an energy budget for the way uh, an invertebrate carnivore partitions energy and puts it into growth and how much it puts into it. Mm -hmm. So I, I worked and I, I, I knew exactly which, which dragonfly drag I was going to do it on because because the, it was going to be the larvae, you had to be able to f identify the larvae and dragonfly and damselfly larvae, little dragonflies, mm -hmm. are quite hard to identify apart from one which is called Pyrosoma nymphula, the, just the common red damselfly. Okay. Which were very, very common in a pond uh, just outside Durham, uh, and there was an abundant population. So I did my PhD on the ecological energetics of oh, the common red okay. damselfly, uh, and that's a blackbird. There's a blackbird doing joining stuff, in, doing its <laughs> stuff. Uh, so that I did my PhD on, on them. It was theor theoretically important in terms of understanding energy patterns of energy use by all kinds of animals, and I finished that in 1969. So was you, where did you go for work after your PhD? Did I, I got, um, I applied for and got what was called a demonstrator in animal ecology in Oxford. Okay. Uh, so the demonstrator is a non-tenure track junior lectureship. Okay. So I could do, I could stay for uh, three years and renew it for three. That would be six years, and then you'd have to move on. There was no no tenure. And I went to work in the in the what had been Charles Elton's Bureau of Animal Population. Uh, then became the Animal Ecology Research Group in Oxford, and I worked there for three years uh, before actually I came to move to York in 1971. Okay, so I guess my question is, what what was your job then? Was it lecturing? Was it helping students? How it, much of it was research? How what were you trying to accomplish? I guess all those things are true. Okay. Uh, so it was a it was a non tenure track junior faculty position so I did some lecture I, I mean I did some lecturing I taught um, I taught animal ecology to the to the zoology students in Oxford but I also uh, had, did and I did tutorials mm -hmm. with, with you know the Oxford tutorial system uh, through the colleges and I also did research have you always had a desire to try and achieve bigger things because certainly looking at what you've achieved over the last 30, 40 years in terms of national policy, uh, global understanding of biodiversity and the likes, or was it always just sort of doing the little things and then it just opportunities came your way that you sort of broaden yeah. your horizons? I've never, apart from one, one, one post, one job, I thought I would like to do that which was the was the uh, being a member of and then the chair of the Royal Commission on Environmental Pollution, which came much later in life. I've never planned my career. I've never said, I'm going to do that next. Okay. Um, I have always taken opportunities when they come along, and uh, I've, never been, I've never been particularly ambitious. Okay. Um, I don't... <laughs> which so seems odd. <laughs> you're a product of natural selection yourself. Then. Well, I guess I must be, <laughs> yes. Um, I, I mean, it, it, and that's honestly the case. I mean, I've always been very content with what I'm doing. I've always tried to do it, whatever I've done, I've always tried to do it very well. And um, I, I get bored easily. Um, you know, if I, if I do something and I don't enjoy it, I just give up. Sure. Uh, so what was the next 
big surprise and I guess the bigger question is which bird came along at that moment to tell you it was the right thing to do? <laughs> well, I can... Oxford was interesting because I'd never lived in the south of England, ever. Uh, and again, nuthatches on the banks at Durham. There were a whole lot of, of birds and plants and insects in the Oxford, Oxford countryside that I'd never seen, mm-hmm. including nightingales. Uh, which which were in Whiteham Woods, which is the woods at the University of Oxford home where most of the ecological research gets done. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and there were, I mean, I was you know, within striking distance of, of south of England, chalk downland, which I'd never come across with wonderful orchids and that kind of thing. So, as well as working, I did a lot of natural history uh, in that part of the world, including crawling around on my tummy in the brambles in White and was trying to for, desperately to see a nightingale. I could hear her, but they were <laughs> singing away in the brambles and uh, you couldn't see them. Sure. Uh, I, I, I was back in Oxford about 10 years ago uh, in Whiteham and I was gobsmacked to see that the brambles have gone. The deer population is now so large. We've just eaten it all away. And there are no nightingales, they've gone. And you can see, when I was the demonstrator there crawling around on my tummy in 1970 looking for a nightingale, you couldn't see more than five yards through the brambles. You can see 100 yards now along the... You know, that's how much impact deer have had on English woodland. if we want to get the nightingales back, we should release the links into the local deer population. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, well, you need to control the deer. There's nothing controls them. whether that would bring nightingales back, whether there's other more fundamental problems on the migration routes or what have you. Because uh-huh. the whole nightingale population is, even though with climate change, uh, most things are moving north. Okay. Nightingales are withdrawing south and east. So they've gone from... They, I mean, when I came back to... you, when so I they've came become to, non-migratory? Or no, they? no, but they, they no longer breed in the north of England. OK. When, I, when we, Dot and I, moved to the, the, York in 1971, uh, nightingales bred in Yorkshire. And, and at Clumber Park and so on, and that, uh, on, on Thorn and Hatfield Moor. Uh, they've gone long since gone from there. They've gone from huge chunks of, of Middle England now. They're withdrawing. and the, the, So the range is withdrawing south and east, uh, despite the you know, warmer summers. And, because they're birds of the Mediterranean, basically. Are they going to get sort of squeezed out of that sort of could, could band? Do. band yeah, could do. Well, so what's happening to nightingales, I'm not sure. I'm sure somebody knows, but I don't know what, okay. what, why, that, why that's happening. Fair enough. I, I guess jump forward a bit, as we sort of touched on it then, a lot of what you've been sort of doing over the last 10 years has been looking into nature improvement areas. Yeah. The nature improvement area came about because the then Labour government, uh, it, that's over 11 years ago, 12 years ago, uh, Hilary Benn was Secretary of State for the Environment. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was becoming pretty clear to Hillary that... Uh, uh, and other people in government in the days when government seemed to care about these things when they had time to and the wit and the wisdom to care about yeah. it um, the, 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 Hillary asked me to chair a, a, a panel uh, to, and to make recommendations to him about how we might reverse, restore, stop and then reverse the decline of, of wildlife in England. Mm-hmm. And it was just terrestrial and freshwater habitats. And so ten years ago I produced a, a report with my panel called Making Space for Nature, which is still government policy. Great. 
um, interestingly enough. Anybody told me that after 10 years that it would still be relevant, but it's even more relevant than it used to be. And we, we had a, a strap line to try and convey to ministers what they needed to do, uh, which what we need is m- m- more, bigger, better and joined. We need more wildlife sites, we need bigger wildlife sites, we need better managed wildlife sites, so we need to join them up. And these were people were volunteering pieces well, of land, pieces well, of coastland. Well, of... well, that was the report, and, and there, were, there were lots of people could do that. Mm. And, and there were there were twenty odd recommendations in the report. But one of the recommendations was for there to be a national competition uh, to establish nature improvement areas. Uh, now, when I when I first by that time the Labour government had been defeated and the coalition government was in, mm-hmm. and the Secretary of State for the Environment was was Caroline Spellman. But Caroline, to her credit, decided she was not going to just because it was a Labour government that asked me to do the report. She was just going to ignore it. Uh-huh. She took the report and she responded brilliantly to it. And I went to, I went to see Caroline and and said, you know, we, one of the recommendations is that we should have a, a national competition. Uh, for to establish nature improvement areas, and she, I remember she, she was very uneasy about it. And in the end, however, she said, "Yes, okay, we'll try, uh, and uh, and we'll run a national competition. The government will put seven million pounds of seacor money in, and the whole idea was these were not top down and imposed; these were going to be consortia of the willing." Uh, so they will be the bidding would come from consortia of local authorities, the Forestry Commission, the Environment Agency, voluntary conservation organisations, mm-hmm. local businesses, a whole mishmash depending on w- where you were in the country. And I, I remember th- got leaving her office and thinking, gosh. <laughs> now what happens if nobody bids? <laughs> we are going to look very, very foolish. And we had seventy-six bids from all over the all over England. Wow. Uh, of which uh, we established twelve nature improvement areas, which uh-huh. is where they where, where they came from. And they're all over the, the country. They're there's all over the one country. In the Purbeck, the, 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 yeah, the, South the, Downs, I think, the, is another the, one. South, the, the South Downs along the South Downs, long distance, the South Downs Way. The Thames, the, 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 the Thames Estuary, Birmingham, and the Black Country. There's an urban one. Uh, the Morecambe Bay limestone, uh, the no- northwest Morecambe Bay, the, the the Peak District, the Black Peak, mm-hmm. Black and White Peak in the Peak District. The Humberhead levels, of the aforementioned cranes, where, 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 the where the cranes are, yeah, where exactly. the cranes are. Now, uh, of course, that's it. That's and that's Yorkshire Wildlife Trust. Uh, and uh, at that time, I was um, on the board of the Yorkshire Wildlife Trust, so I, I, I mean, I had no no say in the choice of that sure. one. Uh, but uh, and they're still there. Some of them have, have, have done better than others in terms of funding. But so I guess a, that's my question: is over these ten years since they were set up, what has happened? What benefits have they shown? Or not benefit. Well, the the some of the changes have been really quite dramatic. Uh, they the one of the ones in Yorkshire, for example, the Dern Valley, which is the, an old industrial post-industrial landscape um, near Rotherham and up up, 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 the, up the Dern Valley. Uh, just by way of example, uh, that nature improvement area is still there. The joining up the habitats is still going on. It's partnership with the RSVB, Yorkshire Wildlife Trust, and, and so on. I read that the willow tits are coming. That's back that. That's Valley. one of the best pla- best sites in Britain for willow tits. It's an, they're on all pre-industrial sites with scrubby woodland, and, and there, there are 60, 70 pairs, I think, there. Wow. Uh, but were also, they there before the? Uh, they were there NIA before, but there are, more, there are more. There are more. There are more now than there were. But the wader populations have gone through. You know, breeding waders, lapwings, redshank, snipe have all come in. 
the the water voles, which you know have got really really rare. Within two years, water vole populations are just bang there all of, and so on. So the and the Humberhead levels, you know, is we've got breeding breeding cranes on the Humberhead levels, mm. um, and there are there have been two pairs. Uh, I am told that this year there are more than two pairs. I don't know whether that's true, sure. uh, but uh, the uh, you know if anybody told me. As a as a teenager, that we would have breeding cranes back in Yorkshire, I'd have thought they'd gone completely bonkers. You've swapped the nightingales for the cranes. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, I mean, just walking around Yorkshire as I have been doing for the last three years, being based up here for various theatrical endeavours, there does seem a greater density of, of wildlife diversity, whether it's wildflowers, butterflies, birds, whatever. Yeah, oh, Yorkshire is a fabulous county. It ha- you know, it's it's biggest county in England, of course. Biggest county. Well, it's four counties now, isn't it? Well, yeah, yeah but it, if you're a Yorkshireman, you, 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 <laughs> no, that, that's true. But you're a Lancashireman. I, I know. Well, I'm an adopted Yorkshireman. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the 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 original county of Yorkshire, yeah. which the Yorkshire Wildlife Trust covers, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know, we've got over a hundred reserve, hundred getting between one hundred and ten and one hundred and twenty reserves now. Uh, we're the fastest growing wildlife trust in the country. We've uh, we've got f- uh, forty four thousand members. We we have a turnover of about ten million pounds a year, which that is that biggest turnover of any wildlife trust. Wow. Uh, and we we aspire to be average because if we were average, uh, that, that's a real, that's an interesting <laughs> thing to say. We aspiring to be average because actually, although that's all great, Yorkshire's a huge county, uh-huh. uh, and if we were average in terms of the land area of the of the county or the four counties uh, or the population of the of the area, we ought to have a hundred thousand members. Okay. So we aspire to be average, <laughs> but we, there were some fabulous habitats. I mean, it's just a great place to uh, uh, to be a natural historian. Um, a friend of mine was down at the Yorkshire Sculpture Park on a, I think, a wildlife trust supported heron watching. The heron session. watch, yeah, the, her- the, the heronry. I think it inspired him so much to join up and give some money to the great. Yorkshire Wildlife Trust. Good. So well Excellent. done, herons. <laughs> Absolutely. All, all these sort of harbingers of joy. Yeah. Okay. Um, to move from Yorkshire, you you were in sort of in Chernobyl, not quite. You were in Belar- <laughs> Belarus. Uh, I was in Chernobyl. Well, I went, uh, right. So, after Making Space for Nature came out, a lot of I mean, other all all over Europe now, there are people doing more, bigger, better, and joined as well as throughout mm-hmm. the as well, throughout the UK. And I got invited by Be- Birdrife Belarus and the RSBB. Was this go- when you were working for the RSPB? I never worked for the RSPB. I mm. was, I was, I was, I was a trustee. Okay. And then I was chairman. Sure. Uh, and uh, but I've never actually worked for the RSPB. And I, on the basis of making space for nature, I was invited by the Belarus government and, and Birdrife Belarus to go to the Chernobyl exclusion zone mm-hmm. on the Belarus side. Uh, which, if you might, you know, the actual Chernobyl uh, nuclear explosion, uh, it, it, Chernobyl itself is on the Ukrainian side of the border. Sure. Uh, but the exclusion zone is basically a huge polo-shaped hole uh, area where all uh, people have just gone okay. uh, because they, they evacuated. And there's been a lot of interest in Chernobyl recently because it's, I forget which anniversary it is when it went bang. Um, and uh, the idea was I would see whether I could persuade the Belarus government to turn this fantastic area into a a national park and a a research station, an international research station, which would have earned them hard currency, Mm -hmm. 
to uh, look at the effects of radiation or the non-effects of radiation. Okay. Um, so, and if you think about it, the, to a first approximation, the, the ring of the exclusion zone is about two-thirds in Ukraine and one-third in, in Belarus. Mm-hmm. And that one-third is essentially the same size as the Lake District. Okay. And nobody lives there. Wow. And they bail, they, that would make the locals in Cumbria quite jealous. <laughs> Get rid of all the tourists and have it back for themselves for a change. Well, it's one of the things. I got into terrible trouble. You know, one of the rewilding projects. I'll come back to Belarus in a minute. Uh-huh. One of the rewilding projects in Britain is is Ennerdale, uh-huh, Wild Ennerdale, which yeah, yeah. is forty square kilometres, not that big. Uh, the Lake District is not just the size that counts. No, 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 it, it's great. <laughs> and uh, uh, the, the, so the Wild Ennerdale people had a people had a conference and they asked me to go and talk about more, bigger, better, and joined. Uh-huh. Uh, and I said, you know. One of the best things you could possibly do is for Sellafield to go bang. (laughs) (laughs) And they were not amused. (laughs) They didn't think that was funny at all. Uh, Anyway, so so I went went to Belarus. I I spent quite a lot of time with the... um, Sorry, I'm going to cut you off there. Do you think it's the only thing that is going to enable us to do these big things is to be literally removed from a place? No. No, I don't, I don't think that. At what point are men going to just go, OK, seriously, let's just leave that area alone? Why well, would you be forced up by nuclear we, we, radiation we, we, poisoning? Yeah, well, we, well there, are some areas where we, there are some areas where we're doing that. I'll, I'll pick that up sure. in a sec. But the, um, yeah, it was fantastic. I, went, I, I spent two days, in, two and a half days in Minsk, you know, seeing enti- almost entirely men in shiny suits. And mm-hmm. the Belarus is, is not politically a very nice place. It's, sure. it's a Stalinist... Uh, communist dictatorship, but they were they, they, they listened. They were sympathetic. Uh, they decided, in the end, they didn't want to turn the exclusion zone into any kind of international research station. Uh, Why but, was that? Uh, well, I, I think a, a mixture, I suppose, of. Probably pride. Why? Why should they listen to a, a an old an old white bloke with a beard who speaks English telling them what to do with their country, mm-hmm. suggesting what they do with sure. their country? I think it was partly that, partly because they didn't quite realise what a what, what a, an asset they had. This is a part of land that has wild bears. Wolves, it, it, it has. Moose, it's amazing. Elk. It's amazing. Yeah. So I mean, nature has just taken over. Uh-huh. And the remarkable thing is, I mean, you you, you have you well, you've got red deer, elk. Wolves, European bison. Mm-hmm. The brown bears, when I was there, were just beginning to come back in. Wow. Uh, and only the European bison have been introduced. All the rest of them have come in on their own. Okay. Introduced by people who come in their own. It is an absolute paradise. It's amazing. Uh, wild boar everywhere, hmm. spotted eagles, lesser spotted eagles, black storks. You know, it's just amazing. <laughs> um, and, I mean, I remember it's weird. We You, you can only go in for a limited period. So we went into the exclusion zone at about half past five, six o'clock in the morning and we were allowed to stay about 12 hours. Okay. Uh, and then, because the, the radiation levels are fierce in places, yeah, and yet you have to have full body scans and or gag encounters and stuff uh, w- w- to make sure. It, Were when, you scared? No, not at all. But when I was invited to go, I, and I said to Doc, my wife, can, "Love, can you, uh, look, I'm going to go. This is a chance in a lifetime. I'm going to go. Do you mind?" And I said, "Because it's potentially quite. You know, it, I might come on radioactive." <laughs> and, and she's thought for a sec- literally a two seconds. Said, "Nah," she said, "You're too old to die young." <laughs> That's love, isn't it? <laughs> you know, so that was fine. So it, we, we went, uh, we spent 12 hours in there, saw some wonderful things. Biggest colony of bee eaters in Europe. 
Uh, didn't see wolves actually, which was unusual. But we found wolf tracks. We uh-huh. did so. We saw all the other big stuff and all the birds. Um, it was. Uh, I remember coming around the corner at six o'clock in the morning, um, and the noise from the corncrakes and the frogs could almost not hear yourself speak. Uh-huh. Can you imagine so many frogs and so many corncrakes just making so much noise you actually had to shout? I was on top of a mountain in the Catskills uh, a few months back and there was this noise and I was like, what is this? Is this too loud for cicadas? It's too noisy. Yeah, yeah. But like, what, was it? what was that? It was toads. It was toads, yeah. Anyway, you know, so they, you know, so that, would, that is quite remarkable. Yeah. But the really interesting thing is that the big animals, the moose, the elk, the, the, the red deer, uh, the, the wolves and the wild boar, there is no evidence of any effect of the radiation on their populations. It's quite remarkable. And nobody knows why. You know, you'd think if it wasn't safe for human beings to be there, and it's it not... Wouldn't for be any, safe for any it, biological... It, it, you know, now, you, it may be that the individual animals show a sign of radiation sickness and don't live as long as they uh-huh. but it hasn't affected the total population, population. Um, and if you and if you compare the, the the population densities of those that suite of big big mammals with the population densities in areas that aren't radioactive in Belarus in some cases there are more in, there are more in Chernobyl than there are in the non-radioactive sure. area so it's a it's an incredible place Eventually, however, I'm going back uh, to Belarus. It's been seven years since I was there. I'm going back to Belarus in September because I, th- we, we, I think, and the uh, the RSPB and BirdLife Belarus think, that the Chernobyl government is actually going to establish uh, an international research station in a national park. Wonderful. Um, to look at the effects of radiation, but it's beginning to get to the point where they're beginning to allow tourists in. Okay. You can go in for 12 hours. You come out, you check with the Yaga County. You, when, when, I, when, I, when I came out, uh, all the, we were in a party, we all had to be checked, and none of us actually had, um, you know, none of us had, had what you're worried about is particles of plutonium and americium, and the, uh-huh. they're, they're nasty. But I, di- I did have slightly radioactive trainers. <laughs> so when we came home, I was able to say to my grandchildren by pointing my feet at them, behave yourselves, <laughs> granddad's got radioactive trainers. <laughs> Oh, granddad. <laughs> anyway, it's a fantastic place. Amazing. There was a television show on recently all about yeah, Chernobyl, and it yeah. sort of sparked everyone's interest in it. Exactly. Again. Well, I think that's it. that was some particular anniversary, and I'm struggling mm. to remember when it went bang, uh, but I think it was some significant anniversary. Yeah. Um, uh, Chris uh, Watson, who I've interviewed for this podcast, he did some recording yeah, out there, which yeah. they used for it. it. It's incredibly poignant, David, when you, uh, you, you go into these... A completely abandoned villages with the houses, the roofs all caving in, and you peer in through the window, mm-hmm. uh, and on there's still the newspaper on the day that they fled, and there's a child's doll, mm. uh, and and there are the knife and fork and spoon that they didn't have time to put, you know, to, sure. uh, and and it's incredibly poignant. So. I guess my question is, where do you sort of stand on the whole rewilding ex- exercise? Well, if you can do it, it's great. Sure. <laughs> um, do you think we can do it? Yes, I do. Is human interaction too much of a part of it? No, no. Now, there's two kinds. I mean, the, the way, let, let's, there's what I call the George Mumbio version of rewilding, mm-hmm. where you simply, you know, you get the heck out of a landscape and you... You, watch, you, 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 watch what happens. Just completely leave it alone over a big area, and if you're possible, you put bears and wolves and stuff back in. That that's the the extreme end. I, I think rewilding is much more. In, think of rewilding as as a process. Mm-hmm. Rewilding is a process where you let nature get on with itself as much as 
possible over as big an area as possible, given the amount of land you've got to work with. Do what you can. Do what you can. So Ennerdale, 40 square kilometres. You've still got some interventions, mm -hmm. and you've got you've got cattle in there that you're managing because there's no arrocks around anymore to do that for sure, you. Sure. But so you've got some animal husbandry, but you do the Nep Estate, which is 14 square kilometres. Charlie and Izzy, there, of, of you know, there there are real interventions there. They have to do, but all, you, you do you let it go as much as possible over as big an area as possible. Mm -hmm. But I'm, one of the things I'm doing that you didn't mention at the introduction is I'm currently chairing a thing called the Endangered Landscape Programme, the okay. ELP, which is being run through the Cambridge Conservation Initiative in Cambridge, the CCI in Cambridge. Uh, they're acting as a secretariat, and I, have, I am chairing a panel uh, that has been funded by Lisbeth Rousing and the Arcadia Foundation, um, and her husband, Peter, uh, and they've put an initial payment of $30 million for a programme of rewilding across Europe. Wow, so where are you starting? Well, we've started, yeah. uh, but it's, it's early days. I thought days. I should have known about no, this. No, well, it's early days. So the programme started nearly 12 months ago, uh -huh. where, we, where we, we invited bids from a whole, from rewilding Europe and, you know, RSBB and, mm -hmm. you know, all that. Right, but they were invited bids, and we, okay. we had a, 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 a pretty a large number of invited bids, and we, we've established seven sites, two of which are in, in England, in Britain. Where are they? One is called Cairngorms Connect, okay. which is 600 square kilometres. Wow. Um, and because it's just three owners, basically, it's the, the RSBB, uh, Forestry Scotland and Anders Paulson, the, uh, the the billionaire Danish clothing billionaire, three three blocks of land in the centre in on the Cairngorms, right, six hundred square kilometres, where there's, you know we're really going to let nature rip as much as we possibly can. And another one uh, in is there a plan with that? I, I've been talking to, hoping to get him on the show, is a guy called Paul Donoghue from the Lynx mm -hmm. Trust. Mm -hmm. Like it, There's definitely plans to try and get more Lynx back up into Scotland. Is that something that might be possible? Well, Donoghue's tried, tried also to put Lynx into Kilder. Yeah. Uh, and and that was unsuccessful because I'm well, told... Kilder's still farmed. I... No, huge areas of Kilder are not farmed. Okay. Huge areas are not farmed. But that apparently that wasn't... He didn't prepare the ground very well and it was, I think, probably correctly rejected. Okay. Um, you could put links, certainly you could put links into the Cairngorm Connect site, and there are several other sites you could you could put links sure. in. Uh, but the other site in, in the ELP is in Mid-Wales, and it's called Summit to Sea. It goes from the summit of Plinlimon out into Cardigan Bay, and that's nearly 200 square kilometres. Wow. But that's, that's, that is more uh, land sharing, because that's farm, that, that is the farmland interspersed with natural areas, so okay. it's more of a land sharing of rewilding. But then we've got other projects all the way from the Coy Valley in uh, Portugal, which is the most rapidly depopulating area of Europe. Why? Because nobody wants to live there anymore. Okay. It's, it's too hard work. <laughs> and, uh, and so there you've already That sounds got... like a challenge to my great aunt, who's well, just bought this place on the south coast of Spain, which has got absolutely nothing. She's bought this little shack and is... Yeah, well, anyway, the, 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 <laughs> no. so all, the way across to, all the way across to the Caucasus, to the Turkish, the Turkish coast. I mean, some fun, Danube... So are you spending a lot of time going out to these uh, places? I haven't been, I haven't been yet. OK. Uh, I'm, I'm about to, so I'm about to go. So one of those places is, is, is the, the, the whole of the Pelesi River Valley in Belarus, mm -hmm. which includes the Chernobyl Exclusion Zone, but actually is... Much, much bigger than that. So the Pelesi River, which runs through Belarus and into... Well, this is... I mean, I didn't know this place even existed, but it's getting on for 2,000 square kilometres. It's the emptiest place in Europe. Wow. 
uh, and it's going to be turned into a huge wildlife. So this is really exciting. And then we've just funded another... We've just done a thing called... Uh, through the programme, we've just now funded a whole lot of things called uh, Project Initiation Grants, PIGS. Um, <laughs> and uh, PIGS might fly if, you, if you're lucky. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, Project Initiation Grants, where uh, we're funding groups to, to work up the next set of proposals for some of these really big, big things. So is the goal... To just observe these sites to see what no, happens. No, there are interventions. To... Okay. Because even there have to be interventions. You know, you've got to take fences out. You've mm-hmm. got to, depending on where you are, there'll be different kinds of interventions. Okay. Uh, but the um, the the Kangon Connect site, for example, what they're doing there is tr- trying to drive deer numbers down. Because mm-hmm. you know the, the reason there's no trees left are very few is you've got massive populations of red deer so sure. the, the, there would be interventions to bring the red deer numbers down and then to allow natural regeneration of pine trees uh, plus other you know, plus some other habitat interventions the the the, the plain lemon the, the summit to sea in wales there's quite a lot more interventions because that's doing as much as possible over as big an area as possible but it's still also got farmland going okay. in it uh, and so on and so forth. So there's a lot, there's a lot going on in rewilding, and and, and if you think about it, as I say, think about it as a process, uh, not as an end in itself, but a process where you do as much as possible or as big an area as possible. There are some really exciting projects going on. Brilliant. Um, one of the things that you achieved is you got given the the Japan medal, the, the Japan, Japan prize. prize. Yeah. <laughs> what was that for? That was for. Uh, the work I did, the the ecological science that I've done over the years, mm-hmm. uh, but partly at, at Imperial College in London, where I worked, for, I, I worked at Imperial for eleven years. I moved there in in uh, uh, 1989, but kept a house in York, so I've always had a base in York. And, okay. my, and my wife and I commuted between two homes for eleven years, but that's another story. So I got the Japan Prize. Uh, why do people give you prizes? I mean, all I know is they treated you like they treated you wonderfully. Uh, and um, you went uh, out and met the emperor. Oh yes, met, out, met went out, met the emperor and empress. Had dinner with the emperor and empress. Amazing. Um, and this was a contribution to ecological science and the understanding of biodiversity uh-huh. okay. over the years. So it was science. It wasn't. It wasn't hands-on conservation. Did you get a chance whilst you were there to go and see some? Uh, Japanese nature reserves. In no, uh, it was it was very tightly orchestrated. Oh, okay. Went to Kyoto and went uh, saw the temples and some what those. I've, I haven't been to. A, I've never been to. I'd love to go to Hokkaido, but I've never been. Um, so it was it was an amazing experience, and we were treated wonderfully. And you know, it's ironic you ask because today the Japanese or the first of, of July, the Japanese have started whaling again. Yeah. I just think it's absolutely wicked uh, and completely pointless, uh, these wonderful animals. and I, It upsets me, actually, and I, I have thought about writing in my capacity as a Japan Prize laureate to the old emperor, because he's, he's no longer emperor yeah, anymore. he stepped down I, a few months ago. He stepped down a yeah. few months ago, and I don't know, you know, I, I could fire a letter off to the Prime Minister, uh, which I might still do, but do I just think, think it's wicked. Do you think the reinstating of, well... Hunting as a re- is as a result of him having stepped down, or I don't know. No. They, they, they've been trying to. They've been threatening to leave the International Whaling Commission for anyway. for a long time. I mean, I, whales are fantastic. And Dot and I, two summers ago, we no last summer, we we had a holiday on the Azores. Have you ever been out to the Azores? I haven't. No. Well, I'm trying. Re- that's probably the last long haul flight we'll do. Uh, uh-huh. I'm trying trying not to do long haul anymore. It's hard to justify. It these it's days. very hard to justify. But we, we went out to the Azores and we we went on a whale watching trip on the, the, the out from the main island. Mm-hmm. 
and we were looking for, for for sperm whales, which I've never seen. I've never seen a sperm whale. I've seen humpbacks and various other whales. And the crew of the whale watching boat began to get really excited, and we saw six blue whales. I never, in my wildest dreams, thought I would ever see a blue whale. As a whale. whole pod? No, a, a male, a female, and a calf. And then two miles away, another male came on a car. Oh, wow. And these, these were moving from Antarctica, going up into the Arctic. Um, and oh, it was just awesome, absolutely awesome. And it was, that's the biggest, no, that's the largest number of blue whales seen in the Azores since uh, whaling stopped. Incredible. They're coming back, they're coming back. It's not all bad news. No, it's not. Well, I guess I mean rewilding exercises shouldn't just be land-based. They should move into the oceans exactly, as well. Exactly, exactly. Anyway, that was my other whale story. Wonderful. <laughs> um, there are three questions that I ask everyone who's come on right, the podcast. Right. Uh, this is the hot seat round. So the first question is, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? Uh, that's easy. Uh, I would take you 10 miles south and east of where we are sitting now from my garden to the Lower Derwent Valley National Nature Reserve, okay, which is my favourite place in the whole world. Fine. Uh, it's a wonderful, it's an ancient landscape. The valley, the, 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 the nature reserve is about 10 miles long, about a mile and a half, almost two miles at its widest point. Uh, it's one of the least known wetland areas in Britain, but you've never heard of it. It has wonderful hay meadows. And they're called ings. Mm-hmm. Uh, an ing uh, is uh, inga is the modern Swedish word for a flooded meadow. Okay. Ing is a Viking, and they've been farmed uh. as ings since Viking times. It's an ancient, ancient, wonderful landscape. Uh, hay crop in the well, they're cutting the hay now. They've cut, start cutting on the first of June. Sure. First of July. Uh, and then it's and then it's aftermath grazed uh, for the next uh, couple of months, and then they floods in the winter. Got thousands and thousands of wildfowl and waders and stuff come in. So it just shifts its sort uh, of yeah, yeah. style. Every and then, few and then in the spring, the hay meadows come and it's full of waders, curlews, oyster catchers, black-tailed gobwits occasionally breed, corncrakes are there. Uh, it's a fabulous place, and it's my favourite place in the whole world. And I go whenever I can. Do you have a favourite bird? No, I don't have a favourite bird. If you had to have one. <laughs> <laughs> do I have a favourite bird? You know, I honestly don't. Well, okay, if I go. really, really <laughs> did, I suppose the most wonderful bird have to be uh, king penguins. Okay. I love king penguins. I've seen them on the Falklands and uh, on some of the on the you know the, on the Falklands they don't occur on snow and ice uh-huh. like the emperors do. They occur in the, in grass fields with sheep. <laughs> so <laughs> you can see these fantastic bir- little bir- yeah. these fantastic birds in a big colony breeding on a grass field with sheep wandering around. <laughs> They're fantastic. <laughs> um, okay. Second question: um, Should we colonise the moon? I'm very ambivalent about about that uh, when I ran the Natural Environment Research Council which we haven't talked about at all I basically put a moratorium on NERC spending money through the European Space Agency and spending money try- looking for life on other planets when we didn't understand life on this planet and couldn't look after life on this planet anyway and we spend billions and billions of pounds not that space research is a, is, is a waste of time it isn't it's exciting and different but you know we need to learn to look after this planet first mm. and I we might want to go to the moon so we can wreck that so we can mine it and so on but it's phenomenally expensive um, how much money was being spent at that point before you we were we, we, we were spending rather little but there was a push to increase our increase NERC's expenditure, the National Research Council's expenditure on you know looking for life on Mars and sure. no, it would be important and it would be fantastic. 
But you know, it's, it's, that's going to be there in 50, 100 years' time if yeah. we continue to do what we're currently doing to the planet. There's no point. There's no point. Yeah. What, what else did you work with NERC in, entail? I was chief executive. Okay. Uh, so I ran it. Okay. So I ran the British Antarctic Survey, the British Geological Survey, the Centre of Ecology and Hydrology, uh, and the, the the Plymouth Marine Lab, and all the uh, funded all the ecological research or most ecological research in UK universities. So I I employed two and a half thousand people. I uh, had I don't know, four ships, five planes, three satellites. You know, it was a fantastic job. <laughs> I like the idea of you being able to call people in, like International Rescue, sending off a sort of a research trip up into the Arctic. And oh, like... yeah, yeah, we did all that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the third question, if you could bring back any creature from extinction, oh, or sorry, any species back from extinction, what would it be? Well, given rewilding in, that's going on in Europe at the moment, I would, br- in fact, we're almost there, I would bring our rocks back, the wild cattle. Okay. Because they had a fantastic impact on the landscape. Now there are the rewilding Europe and several other programs are trying to get the you know by using domesticated cattle, Spanish bulls for example, the big black bull and others, mm-hmm. trying to recreate aurochs, the nearest thing to them. Sure. So that's being done. So they won't do that one. Okay. Um, I, I think um, oh it has to be dodo, a dodo, isn't it? <laughs> uh, bring dodo back. They're just so bizarre inc- pigeons. Yeah. <laughs> I think they're very much like your king penguins as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're after some kind of characterful sort of Absolutely, you have to be a penguin. I've, I've actually got, somebody brought, as a gift, somebody brought me back from Mauritius the seeds of the plant that was clearly dispersed by the dodo. Uh, and it, it was no longer regenerating. Do you know this story? It was no, no longer no. regenerating. But if you feed the seeds to a turkey, they digest them and they, oh, crap, okay. they come down, they crap, and then the teedlings germinate. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a little pile of them upstairs in my, in my study. Amazing. So it would be a dodo. A dodo. Wonderful. Thank you so very much. Normally I ask people now if people want to find out more about you than they can find you online or whatever. But I guess with you, what, if people could do one thing now, having listened to you speak for an hour, to make the world a little bit a better place, what would you ask them to do? Well, I'd ask them to try and stop doing what I'm trying to stop doing, which is long-haul flying... I mean, I've, I've done terrible damage to the planet because I've, you know, I've flown all over the world for, for work, long haul, mm-hmm. all kinds of places. I'm, Dot and I are trying really, really hard not to do that anymore. Uh, and it's possible. There are some wonderful places that you don't have to fly long haul. Sure. Uh, though I may have to fly when I go to Belarus, which I don't want to do. So that's one thing you could do. Uh, and the other thing is, I mean, you know, if you can afford, I've got solar panels on the roof, I've got hot water on my roof, we can't see them hidden by the hand of trees. Uh, we try and do that. Uh, and we're trying to eat less meat. Wonderful. Thank you very much indeed. That's much appreciated. Okay. I enjoyed that. It was fun. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> A huge thanks to Sir John for this incredible discussion. Having listened back to it now a few times, I have so many more questions for him than I had going in, but I guess that's a good thing. Anyway, if you'd like to do some further good, I'm sure John would suggest sending a direct debit in the direction of the Yorkshire Wildlife Trust. You've had a couple of my Yorkshire-themed episodes in a row now, and after a break, we'll return again. In fact, one of the upcoming Yorkshire-centric episodes was recorded in John's favourite Lower Derwent Valley, so keep your ears open for that one. But our next episode will be coming from Cornwall. We're off to the Eden Project. But until then, I'll leave you with a little more of John as he gives me a personalised tour around his very own rewilding project. Thank you for listening. 
this is the place I want to show you. Okay. Which I'm really excited about. So this bit of land uh -huh. uh, was an allotment being being f gardened by my neighbour here. Okay. Dorothy has got family problems, so she's spending a lot of time away. So this spring, I suggested that we turn the allotment into a rewilding patch, re patch which is what we're doing. So it's that, whenever I've sort of seen the first start of rewilding, you just go, okay, there's nettles, there's brambles, and then. So, so which are into what's called a garden wood, and there's a, we've so you've got all the apple trees and all the, the things, that, uh, uh -huh. but, but then we're just letting nature and, and get this on with gorgeous. it. Gorgeous, <laughs> isn't it fantastic? It's completely hidden away. Uh, uh, you see the, the the sort of bright yellow, what are they? That's yellow lustra. So these are plants that were in. See, if you look carefully, there are strawberries. Uh -huh. uh, there are, there's, there's marjoram. Oh God, there's everything. There's uh, tiny the, little roses the, the, of some kind. Yeah, are yeah, they? little roses. So this was but Dorothea's orchard and her allotment and, and so she planted she and her husband planted all these uh, apple trees and roses and everything else so what we're going to do now is just let nature take over and see what happens uh, we've planted some hazels can you see we've put some hazels so we, yeah. we, we've done some inter we've done some uh, in interventions uh, and I've planted six um, big trees these are three small there are three small leaf limes two field maples and an oak uh -huh. because if you look these ash trees behind have all got ash dieback oh, okay. and so they're they're just, they're dying so we want we want to get some trees in and then we're just going to let it go and make gooseberries there yeah yeah just going to let it go this, this is absolutely fantastic you've got sort of bees buzzing around all yeah. over the place it's yeah. quite late in the season for them I guess nice little dog rose there there's a, there's a raw apples here, and then, and then we're turning this into a. This, this is going to be a, a butterfly glade. Uh huh. So there's another small leaf lime, two field maples, and an oak, and then there's a, a glade which we're just going to let, let, just let, and then I shall scythe it once a year. Do you, to let it go and to not get involved, must be quite hard, mustn't it? Yeah. Just wanted <laughs> to bring in a few more wildflower seeds. Well, to sort of the, the whole point is, is to do as little as possible. possible so see let's what see what happens. Dorothea did sow those gnat weeds last uh -huh. year, and they're doing so. They were they were introduced, but otherwise, I think it would be that with there's a little pond here. Yep. That Dorothea put in. Do you have newts? Do you have? Yeah, we have. We have. Um, there's a little pond there uh, which has uh, frogs in it. Uh, and it need that. I want, I want to cover that black plastic so you can't see it. But sure. it's, it, you know. And then we're just going. Then we. Do, it's amazing what there is in here. Once you just leave it, it's. It, it's gorgeous. <laughs> it makes you just want to have a little plot of ground somewhere and just. Well, I've never done. Happens. I've never. It's twenty-five meters by twenty-five meters. That's all it is. <laughs> Every little helps. And it, yeah, and there's a field behind you see, so it's uh -huh. well connected. It's joined up. There's a, a bit. There's a field there. There's a field there. So this is the oak that you. That's put the in. oak we put, I put in this spring. Yeah. Gorgeous. I've been trying to grow little oak trees at the moment. I've got these sort of little pots yeah. that I've got them just to get them from when you put them in the pot and then to put yeah. them into the ground. Yeah. You've got to be yeah. so careful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, and these are, this is the native lime. This is small leaf lime, uh -huh. which has got a very rich insect fauna, including lime hawk moth. So that, that, and that's one of the few trees that doesn't have a disease at the moment. <laughs> at the moment. Um, did you see what they were doing in Rotherham with their verges on the roads? They've sort of gone and implemented sort of... Um, Oh, there's a dead bird here. No, it was a dead wood pigeon. It just died. I, I kicked it under there, and then the foxes have shifted it. I mean, the, the corpse is gone, so there must be the, we have foxes that could come in the garden. Perfect. Um, yeah, no, they've, they've sort of turned all the verges of the roads into sort of wildflower banks. Yeah, yeah. It's glorious. I think it's fantastic. And, you know, and the point is, it saves them money. Yeah. This is the daft thing. You've got to mow a little strip at the edge, and then just leave it, mm. and then mow it once a year, and it saves them money.
and it gets people energised and gets people absolutely. intrigued. Think, think of the thousands of miles there's, there's a Red Admiral. That's a, that, that's a migrant. That's looking pretty worn. There's the, have you seen there's a big painted lady invasion going on? Yes, I have, everywhere. Uh, I saw a few on the walk over, actually. Yeah, and there are, some, there are two or three in the garden this, after, this, this morning, I, I noticed. Anyway, that's my rewilding bit. Wonderful, absolutely fantastic. Thank you. <laughs>